0: Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Benjamin Bowser is a recently retired professor emeritus in the Department of Sociology at California State University. He had previously been kind enough to talk to us about issues regarding racism, and today he graciously returns to discuss the topic of the psychological legacy of slavery. He is one of the co-authors of a book of that same name, and within that publication is a collection of materials, ideas, observations that support the notion that the life of those experiences continue to resonate. It's a fascinating, engaging, sometimes uncomfortable, but elemental gathering of material that we need to talk about. They also introduced the notion of something called post-traumatic slave syndrome. We'll get to that. Dr. Bowser, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Let's begin with a bit of an overview. The way the slaves lived during slavery was not the way they lived before slavery. Slavery decimated the original culture that they had. So though slavery ended officially over a century ago, its impact still remains. Is that really correct?
1: The process of socialization into a new culture, that is correct. That part is correct. But slaves were not slaves, as you point out, before that. Specifically, they were West Africans. And even more specifically, they were members of one of 10 different ethnic tribal groups in West Africa that was accessible by the sea and by river. Of the members of the 10 groups who were taken as slaves, they were really 10 different cultural groups. And what happened is in slavery, Part of the struggle was to maintain culture and memory. The fact is that they actually were able to maintain parts of their African roots and African culture, and that maintenance varied from country to country and circumstance. For those who have, are familiar with the work of Horowitz, there were Africanists that are expressed in African-American populations and are still living. That can be traced back to Africa. You can see this in African-American religion, religious expression. You can see it in the music. You can see it in dance. And in fact, all of the areas that were not around the maintenance of military, economy, the things which the slave owners had to extinguish were all of the things which would allow slaves or Africans to maintain their national culture. But their social culture the stuff that was much more difficult to extain. So this is why we see this aspects of the culture that were maintained. In Haiti you can see some of these expressed almost purely in Brazil the
0: Yoruba
1: people had a international conference of their religion in Brazil because Afro-Brazilians were able to maintain the Yoruba faith almost more purely than they were in West Africa on the other hand in the United States you have the greatest loss of Africanism because of the fact that African Americans are a minority and you Not a dominant group in the United States, except in places like rural Mississippi and Carolina, rural communities there. You see some Africanisms maintained, and we celebrate them through the blues and jazz and through music and language. It's a complex. Not everything was wiped out.
0: One of the things that came to me as I read the book was the struggle to maintain a sense of family. You just referenced that, but the culture here was more that slaves were chattel. And that the owners did not respect the need for family. So again, one of our major necessities in life is to have a sense of commonality and history and legacy. And that was destroyed. So how did these slaves and some of the people thereafter, what did they do? And what was the psychological impact of not being able to maintain a family of seeing your brother sold, your father sold? What did that do to the community?
1: It destroyed a
0: sense of community.
1: For example, the English learned from the Portuguese that they needed to allow slaves to create families and community, And they learned from the Portuguese the necessity to do this because the Portuguese in Brazil really were the people who most purely expressed the sense that the Africans that they captured, that slaves didn't need family and community. What happens when you have an all-male slave workforce and slaves realized that the outcome of their being slaves was death. I mean, it was, uh, they basically brought people in, worked them to death, and then replaced them with new people and didn't care about community. What happened? They revolted. The Portuguese had to figure out some way to provide some incentive for the slaves to continue as slaves. And they then realized that this is when they needed to allow slaves a sense of community and family and reason to stay on the planet and the English learned and we're probably more advanced than anyone else in allowing that to happen. But of course, the sense of family was not as we would understand it uh, today. It was a sense of family that was much more of a biological institution than social because the owners owned the slaves and any children that were produced from slave parents were owned and could be sold. So we have this fascinating give and take among slaves and owners that owners knew that if they sold their slaves, there would be repercussions. Barns would get burned. Cattle would die get broken. Slaves had ways of uh, getting back at owners who treated them as chattel. But the main point, the legacy, is that the institutional life produced a afro european culture, African-American culture, that allows Africans enslaved Africans to survive. And in those survival practices, those survival practices have continued to the present. But a number of those practices are, in many ways, quite dysfunctional. We
0: need to get into it. What struck me is that most of us need some sort of sense of who we are as an individual. And slavery meant that there had to develop a psychology of being a slave. Now, that was not necessarily the same psychology of being Christian, of a Jew, of anything else. And so they were forced into developing a self-protective mental set the slave in order to hopefully reasonably survive or explain what was happening to them. If I'm seeing this too simplistically, please correct me, but it seemed to fragment so much of their lives. And that fragmentation is still one of the things that's present today. Did I say that too simply or am I, am I not even accurate? Correct me. You if know, I- no, no you, you said it accurately, but I,
1: I have a surprise for you. That
0: sense of identity became
1: embodied in the concept of Negro, and then was carried forward in the concept of Black and African, African African-American. But you know what it also had to? You cannot have the concept of Negro without the related concept of white. So whiteness is actually one of the legacies, one of the inventions that came out of slavery. So the whole notion of racial identity as we now documented so well in the census and in surveys, and if you ask someone what's their racial identity, are you white, are you black, or whatever, and they know how to answer that. Well, that all comes directly out of slavery.
0: Fascinating. It
1: comes out of slavery, but it also comes with a price tag on it. And in order to be white, it was necessary to maintain the kind of blinders and lack of authenticity of contradictions as to who one is and what one is and whether one can feel good about oneself and the notion of superiority. But then the concept of black and Negro brings the concept of inferiority and lacking and not being worthy and of self-hatred. So embodied in the whole concept of our national identity is the psychological hierarchy that we see acted out today,
0: every day. Can you give us some samples of what you're seeing? Bring it to the contemporary domain, and we can go back and forth as need be. The whole notion that something that occurred legally over 100 years ago and ended, your book addresses the fact, to use the word, the residual still exist.
1: For example, a nice parallel to this is the dilemma of policing in a black community. What do white police officers do in black communities? Well, number one, they don't know the community. They don't know the people. They ride around in cars. Many times they can't tell one black person from the other black person, put them in a lineup, and they have a lot of difficulty distinguishing one from the other because part of their socialization is not to be able to identify or to distinguish one black person from another. On the black side, African Americans are taught To identify white people, very carefully because your survival is dependent upon being able to distinguish one from the other and to make those kinds of subtle sanctions. Well, a white police officer can't do that. So what do they do? They end up having these abusive situations where they arrest somebody and that's good, we'll take that person because, you know, they're all guilty. They're all criminals in some way or another, because they can't tell one from the other. So justice comes down on the whole, not on just the people who committed the crime. You have black on black violence in such a way that you don't have black on white one of the things you see consistently said in police responses to extreme shooting situations where they've shot some unarmed black person, one, they can't identify them as the culprit. Number two, they're scared to death of. Them. Well, why are they afraid of people who just their very presence is frightened. That part of the legacy, outright fear. And that fear goes all the way back to a very a southern practice, part of the southern culture that people never recognize being part of the slave legacy. It goes right into policing. And that is our gun box in this country. the necessity of the feeling that you've got to have a gun. What are you afraid of? Why is this the most armed country on the planet? What are they afraid of? Historically, it was a fear of slave rebellion. So black communities are psychological. Communities of rebellion that have to be controlled. And that control has to be physical with violence, with guns, and so forth. That's an example of how history has conditioned the present. Interestingly now, someone could say, well, Dr. Rousey, you know, come on, this is a bit much. One of the clear ways of verifying what I'm saying is look at the similar circumstances in other countries where you have black and white or black and black or white and white. And you do not see the same fear of criminals. And you see that this is a uniquely American psychological issue that becomes social, this white fear of black people. And this comes directly out of the experience of
0: maintaining and slave. Was the Jim Crow movement a spinoff of this, or does it get its own category?
1: Oh, absolutely. Jim Crow is, is psychologically a continuation of slavery. Slavery ended legally in this country in 1865, but psychologically it continued unabated right into Jim Crow. And then Jim Crow ended legally in 1965. The psychology of slavery became the psychology of Jim Crow, which became the psychology of the ghetto. It's it just roll it just continued right
0: on. One of the things in, in terms of clinical identifications, perhaps, is that, and I didn't see any of this occurring, but people who were in the Holocaust, degrees of separation from the Holocaust experience, that sort of, I'm going to use the word labels, maybe that's not the right word, But that sort of labeling, I did not see. And what occurred to me is that the Holocaust is over. What you're talking is not. And maybe why these generational labels have not been offered.
1: Yes, the essential experience of the Holocaust was trauma. That's the 1G, the first generation, was traumatized by the experience of the Holocaust. The research question that has been well looked at was to what extent did that initial trauma, how was that carried over into the children, into the second generation, and interestingly, how that trauma carried over into the third They've been able to document it going that far. We point out in the book, where we do refer to the, the Holocaust, the Holocaust of Western slavery did not go on for 15 years. It went on for, and depending upon what country you look at, almost 300 were maintained through trauma. So what you have is a unique situation that psychiatry has not been able to even come close to. What happens to people who have first-generation traumas but inherit traumas from the first generation? And then the third generation inherits the trauma from the very first generation. The second generation have their own trauma, and then you have subsequent trauma for up to nine generations. What we're proposing is that This trauma then becomes not just psychological, it becomes cultural.
0: A wonderful segue to the proposed notion of post-traumatic slave syndrome, which is not something that's dealt with individually, but it's dealt with culturally.
1: It has to, because where all of that trauma got addressed, dealt with and not dealt, is not in the individual experiences and subsequent generations. Of course, subsequent generations have their own traumas, and Jim Crow was certainly one that provided a lot of opportunities for trauma. But the trauma that was inherited and forgotten, and stuffed in, and embedded, and pushed down, all of which gets expressed in the socialization and then in the experience of the subsequent generations, then comes out.
0: The thing that that has to be asked, because I do think your book and the other authors, things that need to be known and discussed and ideas, all that's extremely good. Could someone who's the cynic say, wait a minute, you guys are overdoing it here. Look at the TV commercials now. So many of them show mixed cultures. They show a white guy and a a black guy and they're married or a white guy and a a black woman. I mean, there's all sorts of mixtures now. Are we seeing the end of this problem in society? Do these TV commercials really indicate a major shift, or they perhaps are just done for marketing things right now? I could see someone challenging the notion that the legacy is still strong. Of course,
1: of course. Well, I think it's helpful
0: for people to see this diversity, especially
1: after generations of not seeing any diversity. And so, of course, the diversity is much closer to the reality, But socially, from the standpoint of the legacy of slavery, this is more like scratching the back of a lion or scratching an elephant's back. You really have not gotten into the weighty issues and the resolution of the issues that are underlying. Psychological studies of people's reactions to the commercial, I think we would catch some of this. White people in this country are European-Americans. That's where you have a history and an identity and cultural inheritance. White is a racial identity that ironically, most European Americans had nothing to do with, but they inherited whiteness in becoming American. I'll, I'll get back to the main point in a second. And I have to say this because this is important. There's no country in Europe called white land. Okay. Mm-hmm. So whiteness, any of us who traveled in Europe, Throughout Europe, no, Europeans don't know what the hell you're talking about. When you say, are you white? Those who are English-speaking know what you mean because they understand the concept of whiteness in the English and American culture. There's no history in Europe of whiteness. You have to come to the U.S. for that. And those who are racist are going to be threatened by that commercial because, oh, my God, look at this. I mean, we got race mixing going on, and we're going to have dilution of white supremacy. And when black people look at the commercial, they can be threatened by it as well and say, okay, so now you're going to whiten us out. We're going to be whitened and integrated to the point that we don't exist because their reality is one of segregation, not of what they see on the commercial. So depending upon whether you are white or black, you're going to see those commercials very different. What people see in that. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's work out there already. I haven't looked at it recently, but I'm certain that somebody has looked at that.
0: I've always been intrigued and never found an easy answer as to why people drift into being racist or sociopathic entrepreneurs and very comfortable selling other people as chattel. From your perspective and the work that you've done, where these prejudices come from, where these attitudes and choices come from, they are deep, they are nasty, they are nefarious, they are dangerous. I could give a whole lot of other words. Why does it even exist amongst humans?
1: Humans have all kinds of ways of degrading each other. American racism is a very specific kind. To answer that, you really have to go into my first book, and that is Impact of Racism on White America, published in 1981, now in its third edition, came out two years ago. In that book, we get into the underlying motivations of racism and of how do you get people to look at others as chattel, as things to be bought and sold. It's not difficult to get a person to that point if you dehumanize the other person sufficiently, and then you privilege the person who does the dehumanization, then their privilege is dependent upon rendering no humanity to someone else. So it's not difficult to get there. And then you justify that
0: through religion,
1: you justify it through science, you justify it however you want. Then it is not difficult.
0: How is it being received? Skeptical of what you're saying? Are you touching something that they do not want to hear What's happening?
1: The impact of racism on white Americans, and now, which was the beginning of the work that I've done, and then the psychological legacy of slavery, which is the most recent. Get treated in the same way, pretty much. People who read the book are challenged by it; they get a lot out of it. But for the most part, the general reading public and the general reviewing population are absolutely threatened by it. I mean, it's a little bit too much for. Them. They're not ready for it. I've seen in the last 35 years aspects of impacts of racism that have been accepted into the general public, but it's very slow. I think that in subsequent generations, they'll see these works as being critical, pivotal to understanding what has gone before. Now, I kind of accept that and, and in some ways view it as a compliment because I know fully well if the scholarship was flawed in either of these books, I would hear about it. When people get into this, conservatives, liberals, and so forth, and they open these books, if they give them a serious read, they're not going to come out the same way. I know that's a fact because I've talked with enough people who read material. Journalists have a lot of difficulty with this unless I give them a history lesson. So if they don't get it right, then it will be very controversial, which will be fine with me. That's why the work is well-received well-raised, under the radar, and stays under the radar.
0: But at least we have it, and I thank you for it. The teachings that no idea should not be discussed, if it's painful, if it's comfortable, if you like it, if you don't like it, because the truth will always come out.
1: Another reason why this work doesn't get to the general public is because this is not a book simply about, oh, the poor Negroes and the poor black people and white people that have oppressed them so badly. These books gore everybody. Black people are threatened because I say that racism and self-hatred are endemic to the African-American culture, and black people don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that any more than white people want to hear, well, you're privileged, and that privilege has led you to all kinds of twists and turns and contradictions in your personal life. It basically says that you can't have liberation of one community without liberation from the other.
0: Hmm. Necessary things to talk about. I thank you so much. Benjamin Bowser is a now-retired professor of sociology at California State University. He has taken us through some very interesting and thought-provoking discussions. Dr. Bowser, again, I thank you as you continue to write new books. I hope you can do more discussions like this to discuss a topic that really genuinely needs discussion amongst all of us. Thank you for doing this work. I find it very helpful. Sir, thank you so much.
1: And thank you for inviting